0: Hey everyone, welcome to Go Bold. So imagine this, imagine if you have a cool job like being a fighter pilot, and then imagine that you are selected to be an astronaut. That is simply awesome. But that's not all though. Now imagine that you are selected to be the first person in the world who is not American that will leave low earth orbit and fly towards the moon. Well... Imagine No More, because my guest today is astronaut Jeremy Hansen, and he will be flying towards the moon in 2025. I'm thrilled that he's on Go Bold, because he is the epitome of our namesake. He is going bold, and we are thrilled to have the privilege to chat with him about his career in the Royal Canadian Air Force, his training as an astronaut, and his upcoming flight as a crew member on the Artemis II mission, which will be the first crewed flight test of the Orion spacecraft that will launch atop the SLS rocket. Our chat is particularly meaningful as this year marks the 100th anniversary of the Royal Canadian Air Force in which he serves. It's an awesome chat with a great Canadian, so I really hope you'll enjoy this discussion. I'll also quickly add that we've also had the privilege to interview another Canadian fighter pilot and astronaut, and he is Jeremy's colleague, and that is Josh Kutrick, who we featured in Episode 3 and Episode 22 of Go Bold. They are wonderful chats, so I highly recommend listening to them as well. So, without further ado, let's roll the music and get to our guest, Colonel and Astronaut Jeremy Hansen. Hey everybody, welcome to Go Bull. My name is Jody Atariwala, and I'm your host. And today I have been really, really excited for this chat. My guest today is Royal Canadian Air Force Colonel Jeremy Hansen who is also an astronaut in the Canadian Space Agency and one of four active astronauts as part of the Canadian Space Agency. So I've really been looking forward to this opportunity to speak with Jeremy because he is one of the four members of the forthcoming Artemis II mission that will orbit the moon and come back. Actually, I think it's technically called a circumlunar mission. I think I've got that right.
1: That's right, Jody. Yeah.
0: <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks. Hey, uh, Colonel Hansen, thank you so much for joining me today. It's a great pleasure to have you here. Uh it's been a long time coming, but I'm I'm happy we can make this happen.
1: Yeah, it's absolutely my pleasure to to speak with you today.
0: Thank you, sir. It's it's a great pleasure and a great honor. Uh so as I do with all of my guests, Colonel, I start out by asking um You know, you started in the military. Uh, What made you join the military and what made you pick the Air Force specifically?
1: Yeah, just uh, an alignment of passion, I suppose. I was inspired really early on. I tell this story a lot, especially now that I'm going to the moon. But um, my mom tells me I was only five years old. I couldn't have told you how old I was. But I do specifically have this recollection of stumbling across an article in the Encyclopedia A um, under Neil Armstrong. And uh, first human to walk on the moon. And I, that picture, that page is still burnt in my brain, it just made such an impression on me, and I went back to it so many times I can still see the image in my head. Um, but I was spending a lot of time in Encyclopedia a because it had this great section on airplanes and all these, the Vulcan bomber and all these jets and airplanes and World War II vintage airplanes and all these pictures of them in there. And I would just go back, I had it at home, this encyclopedia, and I would look at those pictures all the time and then got stuck on space exploration because of that picture I saw and started checking out books in the library on space. And, uh, and, and then I realized at some point, I don't know exactly when, but the two merged, they, they worked. they supported one another. Right. I I wanted to fly airplanes. I wanted to explore space. And as a young Canadian, I was pretty fortunate that I could see Canadian astronauts. And I knew that, you know, you could become a fighter pilot or a pilot or join the military and eventually potentially go that path. And so I went to an air show. I got a book on the Royal Military College at the air show from the recruiting person there. Um, That was in the top drawer of my desk going all through elementary school. I would look at that and I just knew I wanted to be a pilot. I wanted to join the military. And uh, eventually I wanted to explore space and there was just kind of no looking back for me after that. Because I was on that path, my dad told me about the air cadet program that he'd heard from somebody. I don't know where he heard it, but he's like, hey, it it turns out they'll teach you to fly when you're 12. I'm like, really? (laughs) Like They're going to let me fly a plane when I'm 12? He's like, yeah, that's what what they told me. It's not exactly true. Uh, They do take you flying when you're 12, um, but you do have to put in some elbow grease in that program if you want to earn a scholarship to get a pilot's license, so... 14 years or four years, sorry, of polishing boots and ironing in a uniform. Later, I did get a flying scholarship, got my glider pile license with the cadets. But all the way along, you know, I was sort of like just pointing me towards the military. And the more I learned, you know, from cadets about service and duty, um, the more I realized I was really aligned with this. And I loved what the military values stood for. And now, after all these years, you know, basically 30 years in the Canadian Armed Forces, I'm just so aligned with that. Um, the fact that we as a military family um, believe so strongly in our country and the morals that support our country and helping others around the world um, have those same privileges that we have um, just will always resonate with me. It makes me infinitely proud. Of the serving uh, women and men in our Canadian Armed Forces, because even though I don't know them as individuals, I know them in the the threads of their of their of their souls of what drives them and uh, what brings us all together as one family it makes me proud.
0: Yeah, and rightly so, Colonel, you know, from my perspective, you know, I've had the fortune to know a lot of your colleagues. Um, this is the first time you and I are speaking, but I've always been extremely impressed by everybody that I've met. Um, everyone has been very kind and professional and wonderful ambassadors to the country. So, yeah, I echo your sentiments. Um so you ended up eventually becoming a CF-18 fighter pilot, which is awesome. And I've had the fortune, the good fortune, to interview your astronaut colleague, Josh Kutrick, a couple of times on this podcast. So I'm thrilled that, you know, I can add you to the list now. Um, tell me a little bit about flying the CF-18. And I'm asking you that because this is the 100th anniversary of the Royal Canadian Air Force so I thought, let me ask you a little bit about your perspective of flying the jet and, uh, and being a, a pilot in the RCAF.
1: Yeah, I'm glad you bring up the, the anniversary, Jody. It is a, it's an important milestone to mark this year, 100 years of the Royal Canadian Air Force on April 1st. Um, I'm wearing proudly my 100th anniversary patch on my shoulder uh, right now of my uh, astronaut flight suit and uh yeah the military has just been so great to me and i had you know as i was saying as a young kid this you know i had fighter jets on my walls i was really passionate about becoming a fighter pilot i can't really tell you why other than i was just drawn to it you know this idea that you could fly straight up that you could fly upside down that you could fly faster than the speed of sound um you know really captured my imagination and the cf-18 never disappointed um, in fact i remember uh, you know, you go through a bunch of flight training before you get in an F-18 and you eventually work your way there. And then you do something like maybe seven flights with an instructor in your back seat of the F-18 and some simulators before you, you get the jet uh, solo and take it out on your own. But the year that I was learning how to fly the F-18, the air show bird was painted up like a tiger jet, you know, bright orange tiger stripes, black and orange tiger stripes. It was a beautiful looking airplane. And when I went down to sign out a jet for my first solo, that was the jet that was available. And it was all stripped down with like all the pylons taken off where they put the fuel tanks and the bombs and the missiles. Those were all taken off for the Airshow bird to make it faster and more powerful. And uh, so I had this slippery airplane to go on my first solo and it was just exhilarating. And on your first solo, you take off and you go out to the area and you just do some aerobatics and then, uh, and then you come home. And so on that, that first solo, I was supersonic, I was upside down, I was straight up, I was straight down, I was doing everything the F-18 could do, and, uh, and I had a huge grin on my face the whole time.
0: <laughs> I've got a huge grin just hearing it, and I remember that jet well, and yeah, there's nothing like a slick Hornet to just, you know, when you put the coals to the fire, it's awesome. Uh,
1: Absolutely.
0: I appreciate you sharing that story. I think that's awesome. But I, you know, I certainly want to focus on you becoming an astronaut in the Canadian Space Agency. Um, obviously, you mentioned that that was something that you've wanted to do since you were a child. Um, how long did it take you to actually get selected? Like, I know that there's quite a rigorous process.
1: So, I mean, I was having a great career in the Canadian Armed Forces, and uh, and then in two thousand nine. So, I joined the Canadian Forces in nineteen ninety four. Went to the Royal Military. Well, I started at the College of Militaire Royal in Saint Jean, and then I moved to Royal Military College after that. Um, finished my degree there, did a master's, and then uh, was flying uh, with the military up until two thousand and eight when the Canadian Space Agency put out a call for astronauts. And it's as simple as they, you know, they put it in the newspaper, they put it online, they put it in social media, and uh, and then you just go and apply. Um, and over the course of a year, I went through a selection process with the Canadian Space Agency, and in uh, May of 2009, I was selected with David St. Jacques, the two of us, and just immediately moved down to Houston, Texas, and, and started astronaut training. It takes about two years a basic astronaut training. You know, as soon as you get here, you kind of learn all the ropes: how to do spacewalks, how to operate Canadarm two on the space station, uh, how to do maintenance on the space station, and how to operate the space station. It's almost like operating a really complex airplane. You know, it's a really big, complex uh, machine that we we have that is the International Space Station. But you learn all of that, and then once you kind of pass all of that, you're considered an astronaut, and then you're you're just you know, you're, while you await an assignment, whenever that is going to be to fly in space, then you just work in the program. And so, I've been down here since 2009, did that training, and have just been contributing um, to the you know mission set, basically things like Capcom and planning spacewalks and just whatever needs doing, sort of thing. It's it's been a really diverse job. I've had some extraordinary experiences. Um, while I've been down here, and then now I'm I'm on the cusp of uh, flying around the moon and working hard with the uh, with not just our crew of four, but this extraordinary team of people here in the United States, but also uh, in Canada and around the world that are going to make human space exploration of the moon and eventually Mars possible.
0: Yeah, you know, like I mean, I am so excited for you, Colonel Hanson. You know, you are going to be the first. Canadian, the first non-American to leave low earth orbit. And that is just got to be something that, I don't know, you must just pinch yourself thinking about.
1: Yeah. And, you know, it's for me, it's nothing's changed with me. I'm still the same person that I was before I I obtained this assignment, but, um, but I am super proud of the country. And I I love just reflect on it for a second. When you think about it, know, how did Canada end up the second country in the world to send a human into deep space? You know, that's the thing that people really need to ponder. And the reason is it's literally tens of thousands of people over decades who held visions for Canada, bold visions for the country. They looked at, you know, what can we do to contribute to space exploration that will bring value in our country, bring value to our citizens, but also be valued by international partners like NASA and the United States, that they'll want us alongside them. And that is what we have curated over these decades. You know, our space ambition started with communications and learning about the ionosphere. Uh, we were the third country in the world to put a satellite in space. We didn't do it alone. We partnered with the US, but we built the satellite, they launched it, and we learned some extraordinary things about how the ionosphere behaves. And so we, we are always using that to communicate in those days. Then we went on to satellite communication. Then we went on to Earth observation, building a robotic arm for the space shuttle. First country in the world to build space robotics. You know, it had never been done. And we, somebody in Canada said, we're going to do that. We're going to be the first to build a robot. Like, that's gutsy because that's a very public, visual, public failure if you don't get it right. And it had never been done. Right. I mean, that's how bold. Canada has been in the past. And that is the legacy that we stand on today, building a third generation of space robotics for a lunar gateway, a space station around the moon that's gonna enable uh, future and further lunar exploration bringing such value with that, that we've been given the honor of sending a human into deep space, second country in the world. Uh, We earned it. Uh, I always also reflect back its visionary leadership on on behalf of the Americans for choosing to create space for a country like Canada to participate, to bring our genius. Um, And so it's the compliments go to both Canada and and the United States on this one. But I'm just so proud of how we've ended up here. And, And I just think it's just so important for us to remind ourselves from this that, wow, we can do extraordinary things. We have great gifts. We have amazing people in our country, amazing ideas. Um, Let's make sure we're, we're shooting for the stars.
0: Hey folks, did you know that IMP Aerospace and Defense's Electronic Systems Division is instrumental in providing equipment for the space domain? The division regularly supports most of the major players in the Canadian space industry and has products on the Radarsat Constellation of Earth Observation Satellites and the famous Canada Arm on the International Space Station. IMP is particularly proud to be part of the most significant space exploration mission in recent times, that being the James Webb Space Telescope, which is a joint effort by NASA, the Canadian Space Agency, and the European Space Agency. IMP was selected to design, manufacture, and test a suite of qualification, engineering test, and flight wiring harnesses for the James Webb Telescope's fine guidance sensor. So it is inspiring to know that those IMP manufactured products are now operating 1.5 million kilometers away from Earth. These examples speak to IMP's excellence in the space domain. There is no doubt the company is on the leading edge and it is committed to further developing capabilities in the space industry. To learn more about them, please visit IMPAerospaceAndDefense.com Now let's get back to our guest. Absolutely. Absolutely. I feel such a sense of pride in knowing that people like yourself and Josh and your colleagues uh, are representing the country and are wonderful examples for people to emulate and and hopefully be inspired by. Um, So, you know, you are now, I, I believe, residing down in Houston, Texas, and you are? a member of the Artemis II crew. Um, That's got to be a huge learning curve. Um, You know, prior to this interview, I took the time to watch some of the NASA videos of you in the neutral buoyancy lab and testing out different foods and, uh, and even learning how to intubate people. I trained as a medical doctor. So it just occurred to me while watching that, that you have to prepare for any eventuality, including medical intervention, should it be required? And God forbid that you need to use that. But it was so cool to just to see that the breadth of training that you're going through.
1: Yeah. Yeah, there is a lot. We really lean heavily on our team. And so we touch... It's really interesting. It's one of the things I love about being an astronaut is we we get an introduction to a lot of breadth of, of knowledge. Um, and some of it, we're always filtering it. Some of that knowledge we get, we have to retain, we have to remember it, we have to be ready to employ it in a split second um, to save our lives or save the, the lives of our crew members or to protect the mission objectives. Um, but a lot of the information is sort of like, okay, I've seen it once, I've done it once, I've um, I could do it again and I have the confidence to do it and I can rely on my team on the ground to walk me through it or to remind me um, you know, of the key things before. I don't have to be an expert in intubating people, but if, if it really comes down to it and I need to do one, yeah, I've done one and I could do it again. Um, that's, we, that's the way we approach a lot of our training. And it's because we can rely on like I know on the other end of the of the radio will be a highly qualified physician who knows what they're doing and they will help me and we will right. get it done together. Right. Uh, so it takes a huge team of people to do this sort of thing, um, and we rely very, very heavily on them.
0: Yeah, I guess that's part of the experience that you have through your normal astronaut duties. You know, you mentioned Capcom and doing things that kind of give you this knowledge of all of the intricacies of spaceflight. Um, but at some point in time, I assume that those duties shift entirely towards Training and preparing for the Artemis 2 mission. Have you made that shift now? Like is everything all Artemis 2 for you?
1: Yeah, essentially it's you know, it's not necessarily a You know a crystal clear line. There's still some other things I do I If I have the time, you know, I'll still go in Capcom once in a while, but definitely less of it and uh, you know, we're a small astronaut corps um, you know, you mentioned we have four Canadian astronauts in our core, but we're part of a larger international core down here. Um, we only have about 60 astronauts here in Houston to sort of do everything that we're working on. And we're, we're working on a lot. You know, we have this Artemis program, a brand-new rocket, a brand-new capsule, building two new lunar landers. Uh, we have a commercial crew, so we have a SpaceX vehicle to get to space station. We have a Boeing vehicle to get to space station. First test flight event with humans coming up. I don't think there's ever been more going on. And we have probably, the, it's, we have the smallest astronaut corps we've had in decades. Um, and so it's really busy here. And so it is all hands on deck. Our focus obviously for the four of us has very much narrowed down to Artemis too, but there are still some other things that just require doing. And so we're, we, we do kind of step into those roles too when required. It's an exciting time. I gotta tell you, Jody, like, um, People are doing extraordinary things. You know, it might, maybe people oversimplify. You know, well, we've been to the moon before. We're just going back and replicating it, but we're not. You know, we're building a whole new transportation system, uh, basically from scratch. Are we applying what we learned from Apollo? 100%. Yes, but we're we're trying to build a transportation system that's not as limited as Apollo. that has more capability than Apollo did. Um, can go to the south pole of the moon. Can stay there. You know, a capsule that can stay in space for a month. Um, so you can't use the same power systems that we did before. We have four crew on this capsule instead of three. Well, it got bigger and the heat shield's completely different. I mean, it it's extraordinary. I've remarked a couple of times, you know, I knew going to the moon was hard. It was obvious to me that it was hard, but it's harder than I thought. <laughs> and,
0: uh, <laughs> right.
1: You know, the, the more that I, I I work through this job and meet people and look at all the things that they are working on and trying to solve, and I, sometimes I'm just like shake my head and i'm like wow i hadn't thought of that i mean i'm really glad that you were thinking about that good job and uh so it's pretty extraordinary what we're doing
0: yeah well and so recent announcement is that the artemis 2 mission is being pushed back about a year so it will now occur in late 2025 and i think that is prudent you know you have to fly when you're ready not to just some set arbitrary or or you know planned time frame so uh so it gives you a bit more time to prepare uh you also recently saw your capsule for the first time uh tell me what that was like
1: yeah so the we have mock-ups of the capsule here in houston we have one uh, that is sort of like that we can get in and you know see where things go and actually put the supplies in and strap into the seats as if we're laying on our backs on the launch pad. We have another one that's more of a simulator that just has uh, the the controls in it. And you kind of, you sit up right in it. You could spend hours in it sort of thing, practicing in one G the flight profile of the mission. So actually flying the vehicle from launch to landing, but neither of those are the real capsules. They may be the right size and they have a lot of, of you know the i guess you know they're one-to-one on it on everything but they're not the one i'll actually be in and so when you went to the cape and as a crew we looked at and, and had that new car smell and this brand new capsule and everything is pristine in there and you're like wow like we are gonna ride this thing around the moon that was pretty fun i had uh shivers running up and down my spine multiple times that day just sort of like yeah this is cool
0: Hey everybody, I'd like to thank our sponsor, Cubic Defense, for their support of this podcast. Part of what we do at Go Bold is engage with warfighters to learn about the things they do and discuss topics like leadership, emerging technologies, and new capabilities. In this episode, you are hearing about the importance of training and the importance of communications, both of which are areas where Cubic Defense is recognized as a global leader. Cubic is revolutionizing the ultra-portable satellite communications industry through their range of the world's most portable and secure satellite antennas. Engineered to revolutionize data and voice communications for allied forces, Cubic's inflatable satellite antennas and deployable cellular solutions provide industry-leading portability, fast setup times, and reduced operational costs. Easy to deploy with high bandwidth throughput and a low cost of ownership, Cubic's Gator inflatable satellite antennas are used by allied forces and aid agencies in some of the most extreme environments on the planet. They are ideal for first-in deployments, remote applications, and contingency scenarios where transportation and space are limited. These portable and secure satellite antennas deliver up to a 50% reduction in pack-out weight and volume compared to deployable, rigid antennas of similar size. Cubic's inflatable satellite antennas take as little as 30 minutes to set up. They are 50% lighter compared to equivalent VSAT antennas. They maintain performance in high winds and extreme temperatures. Their smaller profile results in reduced shipping and satellite access costs, and they support common bands like KU, C, X, and KA bands. I want to thank Cubic Defense for their support, and I encourage you to learn more about their incredibly versatile systems, so please visit cubic.com. Now, let's get back to our chat. So I got to ask you, what are, what are you most looking forward to in terms of the launch itself and then of the travel towards the moon? Because as we mentioned, this is a circumlunar mission. So it's going to go around the moon and back. You're not going to orbit the moon. And, uh, and the NASA administrator reaffirmed that said, it's just going to be a circumlunar mission. Mm -hmm. So, yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah, so th- there's a few things to talk about there. But, I, you know, to answer your question about launch, I mean, excited about just the power of that rocket. When I watched Artemis One fly, I mean, it hits you. It, it is one powerful beast. Um, it's got, you know, the space shuttle had three of those engines, this rocket has four, and it's got solid rocket boosters like the shuttle, but they, they're they bigger um, than the shuttle ones. And this rocket, I mean, it is enormous and it gets off the pad, it just gets going it's impressive and so nobody's ridden it yet so nobody can tell you what it's like we don't really know what it's going to be like in there but i can tell you it's going to be things are going to be rocking and rolling it's going to be shaky um and i think it's going to we're going to be grinning uh, from ear to ear uh, it's going to be a pretty wild ride to uh, to space on that once we get to space it's going to get really busy for us so we have uh an hour and a half where we'll go around the planet the first time We'll be getting out of our spacesuits, certainly glimpse, taking a glimpse out the window of planet Earth. I haven't seen it from space. My, my other three crew members have been to space before, but um, I'm sure they'll want to look again. And then uh, we've got about an hour and a half to just do some initial checkouts of the vehicle. Because if we don't, in fact, a little less than an hour and a half, if, if the vehicle is not operating correctly, we need to just come home. We need to make a quick call in that first orbit, and then we can come home right then if we need to if we're happy with the vehicle in that first orbit and we think it can support human life for a day, then we're going to do a burn that takes us out about 60,000 kilometers from the planet. And that takes about 24 hours to do that loop around the planet. So we'll go all the way out to 60,000 kilometers and then we'll fall all the way back to earth and come just zooming by earth at about a hundred kilometers on the, on the, on the side of earth. Um, we have in the initial part of that one day orbit, we have a lot to do. We're going to do, a uh, a formation flight with the top part of our rocket to prove out uh, the handling qualities of the capsule to make sure that we can dock it in the future. Um, and so there that's a pretty intense test, and all of that's going to happen in the first few hours after launch. And then once we get going out to that 60,000 kilometer orbit, eventually we'll get to go to bed. So that'll be a long first day getting all that done. And then in the rest of that time, we'll do some other stress tests on the capsule, make sure that we're convinced it can do in another eight days uh, to fly around the moon. And then once we get back to Earth, we'll burn and we'll go out four days to the moon and four days back. Um, what am I excited about that? I'm definitely excited about seeing the moon get big in the window. But more than that, seeing the Earth get small in the window and just seeing the entire marble of, of, of planet Earth hanging in the vacuum of space, I mean, it's going to be extraordinary. It's going to be mind-blowing. Eventually, we're going to get up close to the moon, go around the far side, and we'll see that historic Earth rise. Uh, instead of a sunrise, we'll see an Earth rise, and that'll be something very, very magical for the four of us. When we're on the far side of the moon, you know, we will truly be alone in deep space. Um, we will lose contact with Mother Earth, and we'll probably have about 45 minutes there where it's just us and the moon. Is uh, is all that we can hear or see, and that'll be uh, that'll be a pretty meaningful experience. And then we'll then we'll come home. So yeah, like you said, we'll just fly around the moon, and, and that's intentional because we're trying to combine a whole bunch of, of test objectives into this mission. So if you look at the Apollo program, they had Apollo Seven where they flew the capsule with the for the first time with humans on it around Earth, and just stayed in Earth orbit. And then they had Apollo Eight, that historic Apollo Eight mission where they went out and took the you know, the first time humans had seen Earth, all of Earth in one shot. that was amazing. Right. Uh, they went into lunar orbit. Um, and so we're trying to combine as much as many of the test objectives from both of those missions that you do with the new spacecraft into one mission. And what it means is we won't go into lunar orbit because of that formation flying we're going to do early on. We will give up a bunch of the fuel in our rocket that we would have used to go around the moon or to the moon we won't have it and we'll have to use the capsule. So we'll have enough fuel to get around the moon, but not enough to get, well, we'd have enough to get into lunar orbit. We just wouldn't have enough to come home. So it wouldn't be a good idea.
0: No. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, Colonel Hanson, this has been absolutely awesome. I've really been looking forward to this. You haven't, You haven't disappointed by any stretch of the imagination um you know our time is pretty much up here but before i let you go i just want to ask you about your thoughts about the overall artemis program because artemis 2 is just one mission it's very important mission for you and your your crew of course your your partners um but it is part of a greater effort
1: yeah no it's such an important point i'm glad you brought it up because you know, we really do look at Artemis 2 as just a step, one step. Um, you know, it's not, it's not the pinnacle of the Artemis program. The Artemis program is, uh, you know, to take humans to the surface of the moon, to explore a different region of the moon, the south pole of the moon. We think there's uh, ice water there uh, trapped in the permanently shadowed craters, which would be a game changer. Um, there's some really fascinating science to do on the lunar surface, and, uh, and then eventually to use the moon, what we learned there, and to use it as a testing platform to help us get humans to Mars and back. And so the Artemis program is very ambitious. It's a decades long plan. It's not a just get to the moon, plant a flag and get home. It is a get to the moon and stay. Um, it's, a very, it's a unique time in humanity's history where you know, we are on the cusp of becoming interplanetary species. And, uh, you know, that's the kind of thing we're going to see happen in our lifetime. That's an extraordinary thing. And in the same vein, um, you know, Artemis II is not the pinnacle. It's not the mountain, the top of the mountain for Canada. This is just a, you know, a flash in the pan, you would say. Um, We will be the second country to send a a human into deep space, but we're just getting started. And uh, we have a lot to bring the international collaboration we're working on rovers, continuing our robotics expertise. We're looking at how the challenges we face in remote parts of Canada, specifically in the remote parts of Canada, even in our cities, uh, with respect to healthcare and food uh, security and food production. We're looking at how those issues intersect with the issues of having food sustainability on Mars and, and healthcare delivery on Mars or on the way to Mars. And we're trying to figure out how do we harness the inspiration of space to solve these problems for our, our society on the planet and then take the solutions with their international partners to the moon and Mars. And so there's a, you know, there is a very elegant solution there to be had. It's going to take some more bold and visionary leadership from Canada. But if we stay bold, we can do some extraordinary things. And, uh, and I'm excited, very excited about that future.
0: Colonel Hanson, I am totally excited. Uh, You are the epitome of going bold, (laughs) as our podcast is called. And so I look forward to following your journey. I am excited for you. I'm excited for your crew. uh, And I'm excited for Canadians writ large and, and humanity. Um, this is so exciting and I greatly appreciate your time and I really hope that we get an opportunity to speak again, uh, maybe before, uh, you know, uh, your launch and then hopefully afterwards as well. I, I know you'll be doing a lot of engagements, but, uh, I hope I can be on that list.
1: Yeah, absolutely. No, I'd love to speak again. I enjoyed it and, uh, and very much appreciate the time. I appreciate, uh, the efforts at Canadians, Canadian space agency, of course, the, Royal Canadian Air Force in this anniversary year. These are all people who have contributed significantly to this this moment in time, giving me this opportunity, but more importantly, giving the country the opportunity.
0: So thanks to you. Thank you. Thank you. Really appreciate the time.
1: Yeah, no, I love what you're doing. I mean, we we say it all the time. We, we need people like you to help us share the story. And so uh, you don't need to thank us. You're helping us. So we appreciate uh, you taking the time as well. Happy to do it again. I wish you a great day.
0: Thank you that my friends was astronaut jeremy hansen one of the crew members that will be on artemis 2 that will go around the moon in 2025 thanks everybody thank you astronaut hansen really appreciate it my pleasure take care have a nice day The views and opinions expressed in this presentation are solely those of the participants. This podcast is copyright and all rights are reserved. No portion may be reproduced or used in any manner without the express written permission of the publisher who can be reached at goboldthepodcast at gmail.com. The music on this podcast is "Parasail" by Silent Partner.